You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So everyone in the room, you would probably take a guess and say you're either one of two people. You're either a giver or a taker. And uh, I know no one wants to be called a taker. We all want to be givers, right? We all know it's better to be a giver than a taker. A giver is someone who has the focus when you have relationships with people where it's, what can I do for you? A taker is someone who's more self-serving. And they approach relationships and interactions with people with, what can you do for me? So we all have this idea, like, I don't want to be a taker. I want to be a giver. Uh, I saw a TED Talk on this recently, and it talked about how about 50% of the population is actually either a giver or a taker. And a little over half of the population is not in either one of those two categories of being a giver or a taker. They're actually in a completely different category all on their own. They're a matcher. Okay, so a matcher thinks, well, if you do something good for me, well, then I'll do something good for you. And if you do something that hurts me or offends me, well, then I have the right to make sure that you also receive something that's not so great in return. Now, before you, like, classify yourself as a giver or a taker or a masher, or, or should I just say, like, in your mind, classify and label someone else that you're thinking of as a giver or a taker or a matcher, I want to point out that Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary, shattered and just defied all of these man-made constructs. Jesus was most definitely not a matcher at all, in any way. But Jesus wasn't just a giver, and he wasn't just a taker. Jesus did something that blows away anything that we could logically think about on that cross. Jesus gave by taking. And what we're going to see in Romans chapter 5 today is that Jesus is the generous taker. So we're going to go way deeper than a TED Talk tonight. And it really doesn't matter if you are naturally a giver, naturally a giver or a matcher, a taker or a matcher. Jesus Christ is going to transcend all of that. And we're going to see that Jesus took the death that you and I deserve and he offers something that we could never earn. When you believe that, you too can start to break the molds and you can take things that you never saw yourself ever absorbing before. You can give of yourself in a way that you never thought possible before you found the power of Jesus Christ. So take that Bible that you have, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to reflect on three specific ways that Jesus in his mercy took what we had coming to us and in his grace, gave. I want to show you how the horrible, the most horrible, unjust, unthinkable event that ever happened turned out to be called Good Friday. So starting in verse 6, let's read down to verse 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps For a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in verses 6 through 8, we see the first thing, first point today, that Jesus took. Jesus took your hopeless guilt upon himself. Can I get an amen for that? He took your hopeless guilt. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't fully celebrate Resurrection Sunday until you first of all see this and you own up to your own weaknesses. Without the cross, this passage is telling us, you are helpless. The Greek word asthenes there in verse 6 that's translated weakness, it means without strength. It means helpless and impotent. That's who we are apart from Christ. This is an adjective that describes every single one of us. And sure, you're talented. I know you have gifts. I fully believe that you have a skill set and you have a personality that is God-given. But we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about spiritually, you are powerless to rescue yourself. That's where we're all at. And if you wonder why Christianity isn't the most popular thing, you're looking at one of the main reasons right here. This is, this is why. You are fallen and you are helpless to recover on your own. I think it's important to remember that God's plan did not start this way. When God created mankind in Genesis 1, everything he created was good. And we had a relationship with God. We were the one thing in all of creation that God breathed into our nostrils and we became a living soul. We were made as living, breathing statues of God to be in relationship with God, to have dominion over the earth. We have a soul that will live somewhere forever for eternity. All of that sounds incredible, does it not? But Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. So now death has passed upon all mankind, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So again, in Romans 5, while we were helpless, when we had absolutely no ability to save ourselves, Jesus came down to this sin-cursed world to take what we could not earn. And he gave his life on the cross. Without the cross, you were also guilty. At the right time, this passage says, Christ died for the ungodly. This isn't talking just about murderers and drunken abusers and, and traffickers. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sexually immoral thought, every greedy, covetous action, every prideful moment, every instance of disobedience to parents, 
Every disrespectful attitude, every flirtatious move towards infidelity, all of these things, in all of these sins, we are guilty. The Greek word for sin, one of the, one of the most commonly used Greek words for sin is hamartea. And, it, and it's an archery term. That means you take a bow and an arrow and you shoot the arrow and it misses the target completely. That is sin. We miss the mark of God's holiness. When you aren't honest, when you hurt other people, you miss the mark of who God is. And sin is when we do things that are contrary and opposed to God's nature and God's character. That is sin. You might be thinking, all right, well, David, I get it. I get it. I know this. Do we have to dwell on this? The reason we're taking time on this is because this is where you fit in to the cross of Calvary. And this is, this is personal. It's personal for me, and this is personal for you. It's also personal because I have recently had conversations with people, and, and they don't like talking about their sin. People can go to church for a long time. They can know what the Bible says. But if they don't actually acknowledge that they have fallen and that they are apart from God, if you don't see your desperate need for salvation, you're not ready to receive the gift. Forgiveness sounds nice, sure. But if you've never humbled yourself and admitted that you are hopelessly guilty... Christianity will completely break down for you at some point. Like there's a veil over your own understanding. In our own nature, every one of us are ungodly, rebellious takers and at best matchers. But that's who we are apart from Christ. Even though, yes, we all do have those gifts and talents and God's given us ability to reflect his nature, we turn around and we use that and we take the glory upon ourselves. We take the good gifts he offers, and many times we use it for our own platform, and we take the benefit, and we even worship the gifts over the giver of those gifts. So here is the depth of the love of Jesus. He laid down his life for you even though you aren't good, even though you and I are selfish, because we do rob God of his glory. Apart from Christ, we take his gifts and we live for ourselves. But it doesn't end there, because in verse 8, you can see that through the cross, you were loved. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This word shows is the Greek word sunastino, sometimes it's translated demonstrated, but the original Greek word carries a much stronger idea than merely showing something. Showing your love is powerful in and of itself, but a better way to think of sunasano is to prove. God proved his love for us when we were born sinners, enemies of God, but he loved us anyway, and he sent his son Jesus in this world to die in our place. So there's three personal truths about these first three verses you can see behind me. The first two are very inconvenient. The third one is life. You are helpless, you are guilty, but at the same time, you are loved. You're loved. I have a daughter, I have, I have three kids, but my daughter's two, and 
Uh, I won't say her name because she'll probably recognize that I'm talking, talking about her. But so many people have a hard time accepting and acknowledging that their own children are sinners. Julie and I have a couple friends who are, who are really wrestling through this, and they're, they're almost turned off to the message of this book because they don't want to admit that about their own kids. Just the other day, our little, our little daughter ran upstairs, scurried up the stairs around Julie, and she had a piece of candy behind her back. Julie saw it, obviously. She hid it behind her bed and then came out with her hands behind her back with nothing behind her back but just her hands. And Julie asked her, what do you have? Oh, nothing, nothing. She lied three times about it. Julie found the candy hidden behind her bed. Yes, she's cute. It's really cute when you're two years old and you do that, right? But that's a sin nature. We all have it. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one had to teach our kids how to fight for their toys. No one ever had to do that, right? But when our kids mess up and when our kids make mistakes, a loving parent says, you know what? I'm going to help you clean that up. And when a kid has a spill and they're two and they're trying to clean it up and maybe they're two or three and they they try to wipe that all up, they actually end up making more of a mess and they just make an even bigger smear job everywhere else. So you as an adult, the parent, you come in, you clean up their mess and then you clean up the mess that they, they made even more of a mess of after they were trying to help clean. That's what God does for us. We are hopeless. We're helpless. We can't We can't provide for ourselves spiritually. We we are not productive spiritually, but God loves us. Jesus does that for helpless, guilty sinners like us. Jesus took the death that you deserve and offers you something that you could never earn. He took your hopeless guilt because you are loved, and that's not all Jesus took. Jesus took something else. Jesus took God's wrath for your sin. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, if you back up to the very first verse of Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, since we have been justified, that means we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace with which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Faith in Jesus saves us. And now we are being told that since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by the by him from the wrath of God. That phrase, much more, is right there in verse 9. It's in verse 10. And then verse 11, it says more than this. In the book of Romans, from chapter 1 all the way up to this point, Paul is contrasting our fallen spiritual depravity with Jesus' love for us, with his tender mercy and his grace that comes after us. Much more, Jesus took God's wrath for your sin, and Jesus is the generous taker, and God's grace is greater than our sin. Your sinfulness is frightening, but God's grace on the cross through Jesus Christ is far superior. So God hates sin. God has wrath for our sin. And again, that is not a popular message today either. 
We often don't think about God's hatred for sin. It's not popular to talk about. The doctrine of wrath, the wrath of God, you could say it's fallen on hard times. Maybe it's because we have a world where the worldview is very shallow. Everything has to be fun. And it's offensive to think about how God hates sin. If how you feel is in contradiction to God's way, we get mad because it's our pet issue. And people even have the audacity to claim that God is intolerant because they don't like the rules that the designer has put into place. Maybe you've heard this. I've heard it recently. Well, God is inclusive, and and that doesn't fit into my view of who God is. And they're not getting their view of God from what he reveals in his word. They're getting that view from what they want God to be. So my question is, is God really inclusive? Are, Are you reading that into the text? Or does he actually say he's exclusive? Because when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, that sounds pretty exclusive, does it not? God is just, and it is just for him to judge sin that doesn't line up with the character of who he is. It's part of his character to judge sin. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross for you. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when we hear the word wrath, we often have this really negative connotation because usually we've seen an authority figure come down harshly upon somebody with wrath. And a lot of times that authority figure who's wrathful is almost a hypocrite because they've done the same things, right? We we see that with wrath all the time. But God's wrath is just. It's totally different. If you've ever seen a sister step up for you so, so you weren't going to be bullied anymore because she, she stuck her neck out there for you. Or if you've ever seen your father get upset because you were wronged, that is comforting and you are grateful for that because it is just wrath. God is holy and he judges sin and his wrath is just. If he didn't judge sin, who would be left to judge sin? I mean, really. I'm thankful that God is just, that God is holy, that he has wrath over sin. Because humans aren't going to get it right. Just look at the history of mankind. Governmental authorities don't have a very good track record of dispensing justice and equality fairly. Even if we get it right for a while, it doesn't usually last very long. God's wrath on sin is just and it is good and it is something that we have to take comfort in. We won't see every wrong corrected on this side of history, but we are promised one day that God will make every wrong right. In our own sin, though, personalizing this, we are destined for the wrath of God, but Jesus took that wrath upon himself. Jesus is the generous taker. He took the death you deserve, and he offers you something that you could never earn. The final thing that Jesus took is found in verses 10 and 11. Jesus took away your distance from God. Look at verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have now received reconciliation. When reconciliation is needed, there's always a major problem. There's a problem on the table that can't be bargained away. We've, we've seen this. The problem is God is holy and we are not holy. We are sinners. We have fallen short of him. The barrier on the table that separates us from God is our sin. The problem was never on God's side of the table. It's always been on our side of the table. Isaiah 59 talks about this, speaking about us as humans. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. So reconciliation is what we need. Reconciliation is to bring together two parties that are estranged or in dispute. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are helplessly hopeless. We are facing wrath, and we are separated from God because of our sin. Without the cross, our relationship is broken, and we've not only lost the seat at the table, but we've walked away from the table, out the door, claimed our inheritance, and gone on to live our own life apart from God. Just like the prodigal son, who desired to do things his way and live it up in the world. When we enjoy the gifts of creation over the giver of those gifts, and when we have no time for God, we are doing the same thing. But Jesus is the generous taker. Through Jesus, our distance with God is taken away. Because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. Jesus took our place. The father in, this, in, the, in the story of, of the prodigal son, the father pictures God. And he kills the fatted calf. And he celebrates our return. We can receive reconciliation because Jesus is the reconciler between God and man. Jesus' atonement on the cross paid for our sin penalty. And that's what tonight is all about. He demonstrated that he is proving he loves us on Good Friday. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Jesus bled. Jesus was separated from his, his holy father so you and I wouldn't have to be. Jesus turns you from God's enemy into God's child, and that is reconciliation. Verse 11, the only response to that is joy. It's the only response. When we see what God did for us, right now we have the advantage to look ahead to Sunday. We know that death could not hold Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead, and that's why we're filled with joy. But we are going to be disappointed in this life. We are going to go through valleys. Life is hard. You know that as well as I do. The struggle is very real. But that cannot define us. Because this truth is greater. Jesus died, so you don't have to. We should be people who, when we are wronged, 
we see the reconciliation that we have through Jesus Christ and we seek out reconciliation. We should always go after reconciliation. That is the number one way we can stand out in this world. Of course, loving others, showing the love of Jesus Christ, loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is right there paramount. But if we're people of reconciliation driven by love, we're going to be totally different than the rest of the people who don't know Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, it's usually the offending party that is indifferent to the hurt and damage that they have created. But if you see God's heart and that he sent Jesus in this, in this world on a rescue mission to reconcile you, you're going you're gonna to be ready to seek reconciliation when you've been wronged, and you're going to be seeking reconciliation when you realize that you did the wrong. Both, both ways. And the way that we have the power to do this is through the Holy Spirit who lives in us when we receive reconciliation. Without Jesus' death on the cross, we are helpless in verse 6, we are guilty in verse 8, and we are enemies of God in verse 10. But in every single one of these verses, we see something else. You are loved. You are loved. Jesus is the generous taker. Jesus took the death that you deserve, and he offers you something that you could never earn. By repentance and faith in Jesus, by accepting the offer of salvation, you are no longer hopelessly guilty. You are justified, in verse 9. You're no longer facing wrath. You are forgiven, in verse 10. You are no longer alienated and in separation from God. You are reconciled, in verse 11. Jesus takes your guilt and he offers you freedom. Jesus takes wrath, the wrath of God, and he offers you peace. Jesus takes your distance and he offers you an internal relationship of hope. So to close the service tonight, we're not going to sing and we're not even going to just immediately mingle and laugh like we normally do. I want us to reflect on the cross. Resurrection Sunday is coming. I hope you're excited about it. But just, just, just analyze and meditate right now for a minute. How excited are you? Are you, are you planning on coming because, yes, that's the thing to do, that's the socially acceptable thing to do, that's, that's what's expected of me? Or are you passionately craving that moment where you can gather with God's people and cry out and sing and celebrate his, re his resurrection? That says a lot about your heart and where you're at. If you're over the thrill and the joy of the empty tomb, I dare say you're forgetting the part that you played and the cross of Calvary, your own sin. We look to the cross, and we can dump our shame. We look to the cross, and we are free from our guilt. Jesus went through mental agony, separation from God, with the weight of your sin. He drank the full cup of God's wrath, and he did it because he loves you, 
and because he wants a relationship with you. He did it for you. So I'm going to ask just a couple people to come forward, um, a couple people that would be willing to pray with you if, if you would like to pray about this. But as we close, there's, there's not going to be a formal ending. It's just whenever you're ready to walk out the door, you can do that. But, but think about the heaviness of Jesus sacrificing his relationship with God on the cross, separation, mental agony, because he took your sin. Think about that. And as you do, as you pray to him and meditate on that, thank him for the cross. And when you're ready, we'll see you again on Sunday. Jesus, the very thought of you, it fills my heart with love. Jesus, you burn. Oh
Jesus